Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 164b, Renovation Station. This is part two in our look at the monuments of Horemheb in the Great Temple of Karnak. Today, we explore some of the king's lesser-known but still fascinating works, including his efforts to renovate, remodel, and even move monuments of earlier kings. The year was 1329 BCE, and Karnak Temple was bustling. Architects and builders were hard at work on pylons for King Horemheb. Egypt's pharaoh had commissioned these marvels for Amun-Ra and other deities, and over the course of his reign, those buildings would rise high. We have now explored the pylons which Horemheb erected, the great gates along the temple's main road. But while these structures are impressive, there are also many interesting buildings that Horemheb commissioned. These buildings are small and sometimes out of the way, but they are interesting and worth exploring. Pylon 9 and Pylon 10 form a unit, a distinct area in southern Karnak. This area is connected to the rest, and if you are going from north to south, you won't necessarily notice the changes between different rulers. But archaeological work beneath the surface has unveiled many secrets in Karnak's landscape. It turns out that Horemheb's builders altered this area significantly. It seems that while building his new monument, the new king was quite happy to move or even demolish older structures. In his quest for marvels, Egypt's pharaoh totally reshaped this area. Today, pylons 9 and 10 stand at either end of a vast courtyard. But before their construction, this area was not empty. Back in the day, this southern precinct was dominated by small shrines erected by earlier kings. One of these is particularly interesting, because it's an early example of Egyptians moving a troublesome, in-the-way monument. Decades before Horemheb, this part of Karnak was dominated by a court. King Amunhotep II, the famous warrior, had built a ceremonial courtyard to glorify his name. Part of that court included a shrine, a sort of portico temple. It stood on a raised platform with a ramp to access it, and columns surrounding the outside. This monument was still standing when Horemheb took power. Problem was, the shrine was kind of in the way. To build pylons 9 and 10, and the structures that went with them, Horemheb's architects had to remove Amunhotep's portico. But apparently, they didn't want to destroy the building. Instead, the royal officials chose to dismantle this older structure, and they moved it piece by piece. Then, they rebuilt the chapel in a more suitable location. This is one of the earliest examples for Egyptian monuments moving. The most famous, of course, is the effort to deconstruct and move various temples in the south during the mid-20th century. Great monuments like Philae or Abu Simbel received the deconstruct and rebuild treatment. Well, turns out, this kind of thing has a long pedigree in the Nile Valley. The royal builders chose a spot halfway between pylons 9 and 10. They moved Amunhotep's shrine off to the east, 
out of the way of the pylons and the new processional road. That shrine stands in this location to the modern day. And until a couple of years ago, you could visit the temple quite easily. Now, it has decorations of Amunhotep II, Horemheb, and a later king, Seti I. But still, the shrine of Amunhotep II seems largely intact from Horemheb's reign. That being said, the temple is slightly weird. In its new form, it is not a solid rectangle or square. Instead, the building is more of a trapezoid, and we get the sense that Horemheb's workers decided not to rebuild this structure exactly as it was before. Instead, they adapted the shrine to its new environment. The result is unusual, but arguably more interesting. Beyond the layout, the building also has a strange alignment. Normally, Egyptian temples follow a straight axis, as in straight lines were preferable wherever possible. So, hypothetically, the court of pylons 9 and 10 should run north to south in a straight line, but they don't. Instead, these two gates and the temple of Amunhotep attached to them bend off-kilter with the main temple axis. Why? Well, these monuments are not oriented according to north-south principles. Instead, they deviate from the line to match up with another temple. South of these pylons, the temple of Mut stands in the midst of its sacred lake. Apparently, Horemheb's architects purposefully broke the axis of Karnak to line the pylons up with Mut. They deviated from the straight and narrow to connect with the nearby temple. This makes the southern axis a bit iffy if you view it from the air. But it's not too noticeable from the ground. And if you are standing in the gate of Pylon 10, you can see the Temple of Mut down the road. So it paid off. It does make for a nice view. The court of Pylons 9 and 10 was unusual. Instead of a perfect cookie-cutter structure, we have reoriented and off-kilter monuments. But there's a reason for that. And from the right perspective, the change is quite effective. Once the pylons went up and those older monuments were moved, Horemheb's artists could decorate the new walls and buildings. They did so in grand fashion, with scenes showing Horemheb before the gods, and images of royal, imperial power. Scenes from this court survive on various blocks. They show foreigners coming before the pharaoh. Some approach voluntarily, bearing tribute. Others come as prisoners. We will tackle both and see what they reveal. On one wall, a group comes voluntarily to offer praise to the king. A line of men walk from left to right. They raise their arms in adoration, and at the front, one of them kneels down before the king. It is a standard scene that you'll find in many royal monuments. And visually, these men are relatively unremarkable. You wouldn't necessarily notice them. The people have short hair, almost like a skullcap in shape. They wear long beards that curl up slightly at the end. They carry bags full of gold dust. They also bring ostrich feathers and eggs, animal skins, and long strips of cloth. 
Their faces are generic. You wouldn't pick them out of a crowd. At a glance, these men seem unremarkable. But the hieroglyphs tell a different story. Quote, The great ones of Punt say to the king, Hail to the king of Kemet, the black land, the son of the nine bows. As you live, we have not known Egypt, and our fathers have not entered it. Give us your favour beneath your two feet. End quote. Apparently, the chieftains come from Punt, that famous land to the far south of Egypt. They bring gold and good things, products of their land. And they honour Horemheb as the sun, or Ra, of Egypt's traditional enemies. The praises are generic, and so is the visual depiction of these people. That's strange. Normally, Egyptian artists portray groups, especially foreigners, with stereotypical features and costumes. But here, you would be hard-pressed to identify these people, based solely on the pictures. It makes you wonder if the artist had ever actually seen a person from Punt. Or perhaps this image was just symbolic. Maybe these great ones of Punt never actually came to honour Horemheb. Instead, the king just decorated his courts with images of foreigners paying tribute. That is entirely possible. Many tribute scenes are, at best, a mix of reality and fantasy. In this case, there is a good chance the artist is just adding different groups to fill up the scene, and convey the idea of Horemheb's universal power. That being said, the Great Ones of Punt are an interesting group. We haven't seen Puntites, quote-unquote, for a long time. The fact that they show up here is intriguing. In some books, you will see this scene described as a Punt expedition, as if Horemheb had launched great ships to travel south. But as far as I can tell, the surviving blocks do not reference any such thing. Rather, it seems to be a generic image of tribute, foreigners coming to Egypt to pay their respects. Again, the whole scene may be imaginary, conveying Horemheb's power rather than actual events. Nevertheless, I thought I should point that out. Some descriptions present this scene as if Horemheb launched an expedition. But I don't think he did, at least not on the available evidence. I could be wrong, but that's how I interpret these images. Other scenes from this court show prisoners. Horemheb, as king, leads a train of captives before the gods of Thebes. Men and women of different countries stumble in Horemheb's wake. They are tied by the hands and neck, and some fall to their knees, bowing and praising the king and gods. There seem to be two groups. One group comes from Syria, or Retenu. The other come from a place called Haunebu. The Haunebu are a curious bunch. They show up in royal texts at various points in Egyptian history, and they seem to be associated with the sea or a coastal region. According to some scholars, the Haunebu might be a group from the Mediterranean, or even the Aegean. It is unclear, and I won't try to solve that here. The point is, Horemheb leads prisoners from Syria and distant coastal regions. 
so he brings captives from the very limits of the known world. On the distant horizons of Egyptian influence, Horemheb had the power to seize prisoners, and he brought them to the gods. Naturally, these prisoners fall over themselves to praise the great pharaoh, and hieroglyphs record their speech. Quote, Horemheb's terror walks around the limits of the land. The fear of you is in all foreign lands. End quote. You get the idea. The king emphasizes his military imperial power, his ferocity, his ability to defeat all foreigners. Put that together with the Puntites from before, and you have a sense of Horemheb's empire. The pharaoh claimed power over groups from the very limits of the world. From the north and the south, they came to praise the pharaoh. And of course, the gods he worshipped. After constructing his pylons and moving the edifice of Amunhotep II, Horemheb made other changes to Karnak. One change that I quite like was dedicated to the god Thoth. Horemheb had an abiding interest in Thoth, or Jehuti. In his coronation inscription, the king claimed the attributes of that god. He described himself as learned, excellent of speech, and his actions being like those of the ibis bird, a symbol for Thoth. And in his private monuments, like statues, Horemheb recorded prayers and hymns to the great lord of knowledge. Jehuti, Thoth, was one of Horemheb's favourite deities. He honoured that god at Karnak. If you visit Karnak Temple today, you will probably walk past the sacred lake. The enormous rectangular pool dominates the southeastern area of the temple. It is a beautiful spot. I'd love to row a boat on it someday. But the pool is not my focus. What I'm interested in is the rubble just past this lake. The sacred lake is beautiful and functional. It separates the religious buildings, the sanctuaries and shrines, from the more mundane areas. In the southeast corner of Karnak Precinct, a huge area contained the support facilities. This is where the priests lived, where workers delivered supplies, and where offerings were prepared. Imagine Karnak on a busy day. All of that food, drink, incense, pottery, all of those animals... All of that required preparation. And Karnak had an enormous work area for preparing those goods. Horemheb contributed to this area in a small way. He built a shrine for Thoth. In the 1970s, excavations near the sacred lake found a small rectangular building. It was modest, just a couple meters wide, and it only had one room. This Chapel seems to be a way station, a stopping point on the road from Karnak's support facilities to the greater temple. As the excavators uncovered this building, they found blocks with hieroglyph inscriptions. The texts read, quote, The Lord of Appearances, the Beloved of Amun, Hormheb, Beloved of Amun-Ra, given life like Ra, eternally. End quote. So this tiny chapel seems to be a monument of Horemheb. But what was its purpose? Why did he build this tiny little shrine? Hieroglyphic texts on the stone blocks give a hint at the chapel's purpose. In one section, from later history, texts reference the god Thoth, 
Jehuti. They speak of Thoth with the epithet Sehetep Necheru. Sehetep Necheru translates as one who satisfies the deities. This is a reference to Thoth, Jehuti, in his role of scribe and accountant for the gods. In the complex world of Egyptian religion, deities served functions in this world and in their world. In this world, Jehuti was responsible for organizing and collecting the offerings for each god. That gives a hint to this shrine's purpose. Based on its location, between the religious buildings and the support facilities, we can guess that Horemheb's shrine stood beside a path, the path leading from the warehouses and processing areas to the main shrines and sanctuaries. So logically, porters and assistants would pass this chapel on their way to deliver goods. And as they carried those loaves of bread, piles of vegetables, cuts of meat, jugs of wine, and countless other items, they would pass by Horemheb's shrine. If they did, they probably stopped to offer each item to Jehuti, or Thoth, the one who satisfies the deities. Doing that, the Lord of Wisdom would bless the offerings, making them suitable for the gods. So it's possible that this tiny chapel, this way station, helped connect the mundane world of bakeries, butcheries, and processing facilities with the sacred world of hymns, prayers, and offerings. Perhaps Horemheb's tiny shrine was a stopping point in the network of worship. Horemheb's work at Karnak was a mix of new, old, and remodeling. His great pylons added much to the overall temple, and the secondary works added their own flair to Karnak precinct. Old monuments received new life when architects dismantled them and rebuilt them in new locations, and even tiny buildings like a shrine for Thoth could serve a valuable purpose. These buildings are worthy additions to Karnak, and some of them remain standing today. They're not the most famous parts of the temple, but they do have wonderful stories to tell. And yet, there was more. Horemheb did not just add to Karnak. In some cases, he also removed. We'll explore that in the next chapter. The History of Egypt podcast will return in two weeks. In episode 165, we visit Karnak one more time to see how Horemheb, or rather his builders, tackled a minor but significant issue. Some areas of Karnak had monuments erected during the early days of Akhenaten's reign. These monuments may have been an issue for Amun-Ra and his priests. Next time, we will see how Horemheb's builders tackled that issue and also how they approached other rulers who left monuments in various places. The new pharaoh was not averse to dismantling the monuments of earlier monarchs. That included Akhenaten and Nefertiti, but also Tutankhamun, and even a famous ruler of the Middle Kingdom. That is next time on the History of Egypt podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. 